I, I want to turn our attention tonight uh, out of the Old Testament. I know it's dark in here, so I'll, I'll just read it for you. It's out of Isaiah 9-6. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over the kingdom to, uh, uh, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, obviously, we're at Christmas Eve. We're uh, great anticipation of uh, tomorrow, uh, Christmas Day. And I'm thankful that we have an opportunity to um, gather this evening and spend some time together uh, in God's word uh, it's not going to be a normal exposition of a text as we do on a Sunday morning, but just some thoughts for us to consider <clears throat> about the Savior, who he is. Uh, I spoke about that this morning. If you're going to understand Christmas properly, you really need to understand who the person of Jesus Christ is. And uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding and improper understanding of who he is. Uh, the verse that I just read is probably the classic Old Testament <clears throat> prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. And again, when tomorrow comes and we actually celebrate the uh, the birth of Christ, uh, we need to be encouraged by the truth and have a proper understanding of who that child is uh, that we worship and celebrate. <clears throat> now, as you know, the uh, Christmas story, as it were, uh, uh, in the Bible begins uh, hundreds of years before that night in Bethlehem. And this favorite portion of <clears throat> Scripture here in the Old Testament is written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And amazingly, the whole context really speaks to the, our day as much as it did in the day in which it was first penned, because there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, the days in which Isaiah lived are, uh, and wrote this text are much like the days in which we find ourselves. At the beginning of uh, chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah says it's really a great time of spiritual darkness. Uh, it's a time of moral decay, spiritual apostasy. That really reigns in the land. And God promises because of that reality that he's going to cut off the nation. He's going to leave it desolate. But for God's elect, he has promised that he's going to pour out his mercy upon them. There'll be a light that will shine out of darkness and he'll pour out his super abundant grace. Uh, Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. So those who live in a dark land, the light's going to shine upon them is, is what the, the prophet says. And again, the days of Isaiah are not much different than our day. We live in a dark world that's growing darker. For all intents and purposes, Isaiah really could be a modern day prophet in our time, speaking to our day. And again, here we are at the celebration of the birth of the Savior, and it's a tremendous time of rejoicing for those who understand who he is. It's a tremendous time of rejoicing for some. Uh, for the vast majority of the world, not so, because in the honest truth is the vast majority of the world does not understand the person of Jesus Christ, nor could they really care less about him or his birth. Uh, they see no significance, sadly, in the birth of the person of Jesus Christ in their own life or even in the history of the world. Uh, for many, uh, Christ is nothing more than a myth or a fable. Uh, some will condescend that he's some kind of great moral teacher of the past, perhaps, uh, but certainly not anyone the entire world should stop and take notice of, and certainly not one whom uh, the whole world should stop and bow their knee to honor him as both Lord and Savior. So the vast majority of the world really isn't interested in him. And rather than uh, worshiping him, they really mock him. And rather than celebrating Christ as an opportunity, or Christmas as an opportunity to celebrate Christ and, and to bring glory to him, Christmas is nothing for the 
vast majority of the world, nothing more than just a time of vast materialism and commercialism. It's a time for parties and gift-giving and drinking and food and merriment, but certainly not a time to celebrate the hope of the nations. And, and, and the reason that most men don't uh, honor Christ, uh, they don't want to honor Christ, uh, they reject Christ, as I've been saying in, in the mornings, it's out of John three nineteen that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's really the truth of the world in which we live in. And I think Satan has done his best to confuse people as to an understanding, a proper understanding of who Jesus is uh, and man's desperate need of him, especially at Christmas. Uh, we tend to think that there's a lot of evil going on at uh, uh, Halloween and all those kind of things, and there is. Uh, but I think this is where he does his most deceptive work. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians in Second Corinthians 4, verse 3, he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Here it is, in whose case the God of this world, which would be Satan, the little g-god of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So men have a love for darkness, a love for evil, because they love their own sin. And then Satan is actively blinding the minds of men that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We talked about that this morning, that the word has become flesh. God has entered through this child, and he has come to reveal God to men. And that's the hope, the only hope that man has of knowing who the true God is. So again, Jesus Christ is God of very God. He's the one who made the world and all that's in it. He's the creator. He stepped into time. He's come to the world, and the world doesn't know him. He came to his own, and his own wouldn't receive him. And again, nothing's changed. Man has been that same way always. He's blind in sin and darkness. And it's very interesting, I think, when you consider the reality of the fact that men is always looking for someone to help them. Men's always looking for a, a savior, so to speak. Man's always looking for someone who can come and help them out of their predicament, someone who can come along and help them and right all wrongs and cure all injustices, and someone who can bring peace. And men throughout time and in very culture, uh, whether it be of ancient Israel or modern America, is always looking for the, a savior, but they refuse the savior. They refuse Christ. They refuse the one, the Savior, who God has sent into the world to deliver men and women out of the darkness. And instead of receiving him and believing upon him, they mock him. They ignore him. Again, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it is in our time. That's the way it was in the time of Isaiah when he pins these words. So again, the time in which Isaiah lives is a dark world just like ours. Men mocked God then just like they do in our time. Judah, from where... Uh, Isaiah writes, had developed into a strong commercial and military uh, uh, area, but, but the country had declined spiritually. It was a time where God's people were living in absolute rebellion against him. They had really no desire to follow him. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. And God's people have sinned against him greatly. But the most amazing thing, and I pointed out this morning about God, is that he wants to deal with men, even who are in rebellion against him, he wants to deal with them in mercy. He, he wants his people here in the context of the story to turn back to him. And he, he doesn't gloat over their distress, the distress of the wicked. Rather, he's going to plead with them to repent and to live. And again, the people of God, the nation of Israel here at this time, they're, they're murderers, they're oppressors. But God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. He's going to appeal to them to be made clean. And he's going to promise to do the cleansing. 
Isaiah 1, verse 18, come now, he says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God has a desire to act towards this rebellious, murderous, evil people in kindness. Uh, they have attempted to dethrone him from his rightful place in their hearts and their in their lives, and they have substituted themselves as supreme and their wills as sovereign. Again, much like the time in which we live, they're a thankless people. Yet they've attempted to keep the outward appearance of piety and the worship of God and external offerings, and they've multiplied their sacrifices. But God sees the truth because God knows the heart. These people have abandoned him altogether. They've joined the camp of the enemy. The moral conduct of the nation is like their pagan neighbors. And they refuse to separate themselves because of their sinfulness and defilement. They refuse to separate from themselves from the pagans around them. And again, it's at such a time, such a people, that the prophet Isaiah has been called to preach. To this time, to this people, again, not much different than the time in which we live. And God, the prophet uh, here, or Isaiah, the prophet of God, is speaking again uh, through uh, on the behalf of the Lord. He's pleading with God's people to turn away, turn from their evil, repent, return to Him. But again, they're going to refuse. We know that historically, they're going to refuse, and God's going to bring judgment upon the nation. He's going to discipline that nation. They're going to suffer affliction by way of invasion. And again, while the nation had prospered financially, the people became materialistic. Again, they neglected God. They grew weak spiritually, and they stopped worshiping the true and the living God, and they began to worship idols, idols crafted by their perverted minds, their rebellious hands. And whenever true worship is eliminated, you can be certain that Satan is going to come along and bring false worship, worship of demons, the worship of evil spirits, because that's what idolatry is. It's not just that people bow down to stones or pieces of wood or trinkets made out of gold or silver when people into idol worship. They actually worship unknowingly, most of them, but they actually worship, enter into the worship of demons. That's what holds people in idolatry. Because fallen angels, demons, begin to function in people's lives and people pray to these idols and they actually start to see results. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the people or all the gods of the nations are idols. Uh, Again, they're demons. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14, My beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry because idolatry is really sacrificing to demons. It's the worship of demons. Leviticus 17.7, they sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons uh, in which they play the harlot. Deuteronomy 32 verse 17, they sacrificed demons uh, to demons or to devils, it says in the authorized, the King James Version. They sacrificed to devils who are not God, the little g-gods whom they have not known, uh, and, and new gods who came lately, uh, whom your fathers did not dread. Isaiah, or Psalm uh, 106 verse 37, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Uh, we see that in our culture. So what, that's what abortion is. It's the murder of the innocent. It's idol worship. It's, it's sacrificed unto demons. So again, idolatry is the worship of demons, and it's the worship of anything and everything but the one, the true, and the living God. That's idolatry. And again, anything worshiping other, other than him is nothing less than the worship of demons. It's nothing less than idolatry. 
So just like in Isaiah's time, there's no wonder why our times are growing darker. There's no wonder why there's an increasing uh, uh, drug abuse problems and alcoholism, divorce and war and violence and a lack of genuine love, crime, perversion of every kind, not only just perversion, but open perversion, willful perversion, calling people to come and sin with them, although they know it's an abomination against God. And again, homosexuality is everywhere in the time in which we live, and it's not just homosexuality, the acceptance, but it's a militant forcing and indoctrination of so-called alternative lifestyles. Increase in crime, increase in lust, increase in depravity, diseases, mental and physical. That, that's the kingdom of darkness, and that, that, that kingdom is expanding. And again, as men and women refuse to worship the true and the living God and reject uh, the word of God, they end up in this demonic worship, even in sophisticated Western world uh, uh, like us. Now, we're probably not bowing down to many rocks or, or, or wooden totems, but we bow down to money and sex and uh, personal autonomy and personal pleasure, success, sports, anything that you put before God is idolatry. And when we don't worship God, demons come in again and they lead people's minds astray. And Isaiah is going to give a picture of that in chapter 8, verse 19. He says, where the ungodly are consulting mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. Uh, spiritists, uh, that, that word uh, uh, that's used there in the, uh, the ESV is necromancers. It's people who try to converse with the dead. God asks, should not a people consult their God? Uh, who should they, uh, should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? So again, it's a time of such great depravity and darkness that people won't go to God. They won't ask God. But people like now, they literally communicate with the dead or attempt to try to communicate with the dead. Again, demons who speak, mutter, whisper, chirp, uh, uh, underworld spirits uh, who come in and uh, fill uh, men's dark minds with lies. Shouldn't a people consult their God? Shouldn't the people be preoccupied with the living God versus the demonic? It's a great question. And again, in our culture, we've completely jettisoned God. Been talking about that the last few mornings. In the beginning, God, people don't believe that anymore. That's because people have rejected the word of the living God and have usurped God's word and, and asserted themselves as the authority in the room, which is absolute madness. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to his word, they have no dawn, or there's no light in them. Uh, the, the new uh, English standard says their, their minds are spiritually darkened, and that's it. When you reject the word of God, there's nothing but darkness. Verse 21 of that chapter says, They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they're hungry, they will be uh, enraged and curse their king and their uh, and their God as they face upward. So people turn their hearts against God, and they're going to become increasingly, or as people turn their hearts against God, they're going to become increasingly distressed, uh, hungry, in despair. They're going to they're going to curse God. They're going to curse their leaders. They're going to keep, speak contemptuously against their King and their God. And again, exactly like you see today, there's there, there's no rule or authority. And whenever you hear someone speak about rule and authority, it's always in opposition to it. It's never in submission to it, like we've been studying the book of Romans. Verse 22 says, They'll look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. They'll be driven away into darkness. 
That's what happens when you turn away from God. That's what happens when a nation turns from God, or that's what happens when a people uh, individually turn away from God. When you reject him, when you reject his word, when you worship the earth, they will look to the earth. I mean, does that sound familiar? The whole green energy type thing? The whole serve the, the, the creation? Reject the creator? When you worship the earth, you turn away from the living God and you're driven to idolatry. Again, exactly what we see today. If you're not worshiping the true and the living God, then you're worshiping a substitute. Devils or Satan himself in some form of another, uh, some form or another. Again, the devil is the prince of this world. Uh, he, only, he only makes sense or the world only makes sense to those who don't know God. Because he's the, the, the prince of the power of the air. He's the, the little G God that is the ruler over the nations. Now, a godless people becomes more godless. A godless people becomes more demonic and more dark. Save the polar bear. Murder children. That's the upside down world in which we live. So it's a very dark world now. It's a very dark world that Isaiah is trying to speak into. Again, very much like our day. So it's to these people that God is going to send a messenger, a messenger of warning, of impending judgment, that there is a, day, a terrible day of reckoning that is coming to those who oppose God. And those who oppose God are going to be humbled. They're going to be humbled and God's going to be exalted. And all the idols of men are going to be completely vanquished. But to these, to these men who have abandoned God and trusted themselves, they're in a lot of trouble unless God intercedes. Unless God intercedes, they're doomed. So again, most of the people in the context of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah is speaking to, they never listened to the warning. They never, they never heeded the message. Most of them continue to reject God. They paid no attention to the prophet, no attention to his message. In fact, they hated him. They despised him. And eventually history says that they're going to have him killed, right? They had him sawn in two. God declares judgment upon this people, upon Judah. Judah that has fallen into darkness. Night without morning. Gloom and despair that's going to fill the land. Judgment awaits because of unbelief. Now, again, we're not Israel. I understand that. But we, we do well, I think, as a nation. We would do well as individuals to heed the warning that God judges sin. And God judges rebellion. And the most amazing thing, I've been talking about this on Sunday mornings also, is to these people who are um, uh, such uh, in a terrible condition, God's also going to send a message of hope. He's going to send the message of hope, a promise of a coming king who's going to come and forever alter human history. So chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah begins with that wonderful announcement of salvation for a sinful, rebellious people. And Isaiah says there's going to be light instead of darkness. That there's going to be a great light that's going to come and shine, and that's the Messiah. God himself is going to intercede. God himself is going to interfere in the realm of mankind, and he's going to send a Savior. And his name is Emmanuel. His name is God with us. He's the one whom God is going to send in this darkness uh, that's desperately in need of hope and help. He's going to send one who's the light of the world, one who can open the eyes of the blind so that they might see that those who walk after him will not walk in, dark, will not walk in darkness because he is the one who said, I am the light of the world. John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Light is what men who are in darkness desperately need. Isaiah 9, 1 says this, There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. 
So again, God's going to act. He says, earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. So before this prophecy um, is uh, foretold, uh, there's a man named Tiglath-Pileser who is the uh, leader of Assyria, and he, he wipes out this area. <clears throat> he wipes out the land of Zebulun. He wipes out the land of Naphtali, which is a very uh, specific area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And this is what God is doing, this one tiny uh, point of land, uh, again, saying that he's going to bring judgment upon that people. And he's also made the same promise to the entire world that's in rebellion against him. He'll bring judgment because of their sin. But that's interesting that Isaiah 9, one passage, there'll be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. But here it is. But later... Later on, he's going to make it glorious. By way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles. Again, we're 700 years before the birth of Christ, and we're here in the book of Isaiah. God is making the promise that he's going to send mercy upon people whom he has punished in the past, but he passed forward, passed forward to the New Testament 700 years later. He's going to bring mercy. Because, again, that's the, the character of God, the nature of God. We talked about that recently also. He punishes sin, but in wrath he remembers his mercy. And God is not only going to treat this people with mercy, God says that the Galilee of the Gentiles, the place where God first displayed that great salvation by sending the promised king, the Messiah, Emmanuel, to them, those people, verse 2, who walk in darkness will see a great light. God's not only going to bless and bring light to the nation of Israel, but he's going to bring it to the Gentiles, to the nations. People who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine upon them. Now, in the context of the story, you have to understand that the Jews despised Galilee. It was a province, an area that was filled with Gentiles, and they had contempt for for Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So when Christ came, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea to fulfill a prophecy out of the book of Micah. And then to fulfill the prophecy here in Isaiah, uh, he moves to, to Galilee. And such contempt did uh, the Jewish people have for the Galileans. Philip, when he was told of the Christ, you might remember back in John verse 46, uh, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. People had such great contempt for this Gentile nation, this Gentile area. But God has kindness and mercy for the world. God in his mercy and kindness doesn't show up at Jerusalem. He doesn't show up in some some big city. He doesn't show up in the center of religious activity. He comes to this lowly place called Galilee uh, of the Gentiles. Again, a lowly, despised place. That's where Jesus ministered. That's where Jesus Christ, uh, as the Savior, worked. uh, Because he's the Savior, again, not only of the Jewish people, but he's the Savior of the Gentiles. He's the Savior of all men. Now, many Jews, many of the religious leaders would reject him. But again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, to those who believe, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of darkness, the light will shine upon them. Matthew says that right after Christ uh, defeated Satan in that wilderness uh, experience, that Christ fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when they heard that John had been taken into custody, they withdrew to Galilee, 
And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea of the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is fulfilled to what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light dawned. From that time, it says, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, that's a, that's a, a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And the fulfillment is these people who sit in darkness, this world, this specific geographical location in the context, they're going to see light. They have seen light because the light has come. Now, back in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, it says that those who trust in the Lord, they're going to have joy instead of gloom. That's verse 3 of chapter 9. In verse 4, it says there's going to be freedom instead of oppression, freedom from sin, freedom from the burden of sin, freedom from the bondage of sin. The prophet says there's going to be peace instead of war. That's verse 5 of that chapter. And now the prophet turns his attention to the person whom God's going to send so that he might be identifiable and easily, uh, more easy identified. He, he describes him in his perfection. And he does that by indicating his names. This is the verse I read at the beginning. This is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us. The son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's an interesting statement. A child will be born to us, a son will be given. So this person who's going to come and bring light, this person who's going to come and bring salvation, rescue, deliverance, he's going to be both born and given, which speaks to the issue of his nature, that he's both human and divine. A child born, a child that will be born speaks to his humanity, but a son given speaks of his deity, his preexistence. The birth of the child is going to be a gift to men. This child is going to come. He's going to be born, or this person is going to become born as a child. A child will be born to us, uh, again, the Son of Man, the one who uh, began his life just like any other human being did in, in this world as an infant. That, again, is the Lord Jesus Christ. As a man born perfect, he felt everything that we felt, everything that we feel. He hurt just like, hurts just like we hurt. He, he would weep just like we would weep. And even in his death, later on, he felt the weight of sin. He took our sin upon himself. But again, he's the one who existed before he was born, as the eternal son of God. Again, the prophet says, the son will be given to us. That's the only begotten, the only one of his kind. I spoke about that this morning, the monogonase, the the most unique one who's ever been born, 100% deity, 100% humanity, the only one who's both human and divine. That's the son of the most high. That's the son of the father's love. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been given as a gift to be the savior, our savior. And again, with a human body, he can conquer sin and death forever. He's the one who will humble himself and take on our flesh and always and uh, all points be tempted like we are. Yet he is without sin. So as the perfect man, he could stand in our place, understanding our struggles as the perfect God. He alone could bear our sin. And that's why the Father will send him into the world out of a gift of his love because of his tremendous, tremendous mercy. And that the Son whom the Father is going to send to be the Savior, he's the one who's both born and given. The one who's Emmanuel, the one who's God with us. So a child will be born, a son will be given, and he's going to occupy a place of dignity. The prophet goes on and says the government will rest on his shoulders. 
This one who's coming, this child born, is going to come of a royal lineage, and he's going to rule over the throne of David forever. He'll be the king of kings and the lord of lords. He'll rule over the hearts and the minds and the affairs of men whom he loves on this earth. He will subdue all the enemies of his people. He will protect them. He'll provide for them everything they need for life and godliness. And those who reign or take refuge under his government are safe and never need of want or worry. Child born, the son given, is the sovereign ruler of the universe. The government resting on his shoulders uh, means also that he's coming again. He's not just that baby in the manger. That's who he was when he came the first time into this world incarnate. But again, the government resting on his shoulders speaks of the promise of his second coming, where he'll come back as a conquering king, one who will overturn all unrighteousness, one who will deal with all of his enemies, one who will reign over this earth physically and all the kingdoms and governments of the world physically in time and then throughout eternity. So again, the first time he came, he came as a humble servant, veiled in flesh, a baby in the manger, and men rejected him. Again, the second time he comes as conquering king in all of his glory, and the entire world will see him, and the entire world will bow before him as king of kings. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. And again, here's the hope, the hope of the nations. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Again, men today are looking for somebody to answer their problems, answer their questions. They're searching in vain for the meaning of life. They're searching in vain for the solutions to all their problems. They read books, they go to psychologists and and, uh, uh, psychiatrists and analysts, but they never find the answers with the problems that they're encountering in life in a fallen world. But they need looked at one. They need but look at one, the one who is the wonder of a counselor. A wonder of a counselor, the wonderful counselor, the one who has all of the answers. The one who has all the answers to the world's confusions and problems. The one whose counsel transcends human wisdom because it's divine. The one who gives comfort and strength throughout time and all of eternity. He is the perfect counselor because as God, he knows everything. He is the source of all truth. When he was here during his incarnation, Christ demonstrated that wisdom as a counselor. People, when they came to him with their issues or problems, he always knew what to say. He always knew how to reach out to uh, meet the need of the seeking heart. He always knew how to uh, comfort the afflicted and how to rebuke the uh, impetuous soul. And that was the testimony of everyone who heard him out of John chapter 7, verse 46. Uh, It was said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. That's Jesus Christ. Because, again, he's the source of all truth. He knows everything about you. He knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He alone knows how to solve your problems. Because Jesus Christ is indeed a wonder of a counselor. The one you should turn to. The one you should turn to when you need light to come on, when you need help and hope. When you need revelation of what to do in your specific situation. He goes on and says his name will be called Mighty God, the Strong One, El. He will be called Mighty God. He's the battle champion or the the all-powerful victor in the arena of history. In the kingdom of this mighty champion, his kingdom is never in chaos. Again, the chaos that we see in the world is the world's chaos. It's not his chaos. 
He, he is the mighty God. He is the one who brings order out of disorder. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, absolute deity. God of very God. And again, as the mighty God, he is the one who has the power to defeat sin and Satan and death. He's the one who can liberate us from evil. He's the one who answers our prayers. He's the one who restores the broken heart, the broken soul. He's the one who rebuilds our lives and provides all the answers that we need. He's the one who has the power to heal the sick. He's the one who has the power to raise the dead. He's the one who has the power to eternally rescue men from hell. And one day he's promised to return. He's going to set up his kingdom in full expression of his power. This is the one who knows all about you again, the one who knows your need, and the one who has the ability and the power to act on your behalf. The power to move on your behalf, to do something. His name will be called Mighty God, and then the next name is Eternal Father. Eternal Father is literally the Father of the ages, the Father of eternity. He's the one who declares the end from the beginning and all things in between. He's the one who's in complete sovereign control of all things. And he's the one who's made the promise that all things will work for the ultimate good of his people. Because he's the everlasting father. And because he's the everlasting father, he is the loving paternal protector of his people. Concerned, tender, faithful, wise, provider, protector, guardian of his people. And as the father of eternity or the father of the ages, he's the one who, who literally fathered eternity. He, he, he's the one uh, who has eternal eternality in him. He's the one who possesses eternal life. And as Isaiah is saying, as those who repent and believe upon him, th- those who love him and receive him will receive who he is in part. And he is eternity. Those who receive him and repent will receive who he is, everlasting life with him eternally. He's the father of a new race of men. In Adam, the scripture says, all die, but in Christ all are made alive. So he's really the father of a new race of men for those who have been taken out of that realm of darkness, that realm of death. Those who passed out of death to life. Those who are now united with him, no longer united in Adam, but now find themselves in Christ. His name is Mighty God, Eternal Father. His name is Prince of Peace. The word in the Hebrew, shalom. He's the one who bestows shalom. Peace in the fullest sense. Again, in Messiah's kingdom, there will be no conflict. He's the one who brings subjective and objective peace. He's the one who brings peace to the sin-sick soul. He's the one who brings a reconciled relationship between God and man. And he's been sent into this world by the Father... The Father of mercies, to do this very thing. He's the one who brings a cessation of all hostilities between man and God. Again, Carl read it earlier, I believe. At the birth, his birth was heralded by the angels, and the angels came and they pronounced peace on earth. Luke 2, verse 13, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Among men with whom he's pleased. The world could use a little bit of peace, couldn't it? Never going to find it on their own. 
Never, men will never find the subjective peace they long for, nor will men find objective peace that they desperately need unless they repent and turn to this person. Because objective peace has come to men through the birth of the person of Jesus Christ. The one whom God sent out of his love and great mercy. The one whom God accepted the sacrifice that he will lay down as a, a young man, perhaps 30, 33, as he dies on the Calvary's cross in our place as a substitute. Our righteous anger, or God's righteous anger towards our sin turned away from us and turned towards his dearly beloved son whom he has given and the Bible says, all who repent and believe upon him, all who have been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, they have peace. Because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that's why God has sent him. And again, that's exactly what the world's looking for, exactly what the world is desiring. They desire peace, but they will only find it in this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he alone has lasting peace. Governments of the world don't know peace. They never will know peace. The leaders of the world, the rulers of the world, they're always promising peace, but they can't deliver. But this one brings peace. He brings peace to the world. He brings peace to those who yield their lives to him, those who fear him, those who hope in his mercy, and those who love him. That's the message of Christmas. That's the good news that God has answered all the confusion and chaos and complexities and difficulties and conflicts in life. And he's done it through one person, his son. For a child will be born to us, the son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And again, this child that is born, the son that is given is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Emmanuel, the son born, the son given Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 the angel speaking to Joseph of Mary and her situation her condition as she was with child Matthew 1 verse 20 he says that was conceived in her as of the Holy Spirit she will bear a son you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins he says now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord uh, by the Lord, through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God's with, God is with us. So that's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So it's interesting, when you look at the Bible throughout the history, throughout the darkest of times, God always acts in mercy. When God and his word is rejected, when the demons are worshipped, God in his mercy has announced revelation of one who is coming forth to solve all these problems, one who's the Savior. We're talking to some young people in our home the other day and made that mention of that when we were going through the book of Genesis, looking at the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against him. And God could have crushed them at the moment. God could have extinguished them, but he didn't. promised to send the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. That's God interjecting mercy when he could have brought judgment. In Egypt, Israel's in bondage. There's plagues everywhere. But God promised that he would send mercy because deliverance would come through the Passover lamb, which again is a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. And again in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, when things are dark in Isaiah's world, 
when men reject God, when corruption is at its highest level, when men are in sin and sit in absolute darkness, God makes the great proclamation, the amazing proclamation of the announcement of his son coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we celebrate Christmas. We proclaim God's mercy. We speak of this one who's been promised. The angel said in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, there's good news of great joy which shall be for all the people this day. Today in the city of David there has been born, next two words, for you. There's been born for you. The Savior is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. And Jesus Christ is the only hope of a dark world. Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the perfect Savior, the Prince of Peace. And again, the world mocks him, laughs at him, pays him hypocritical homage at this time of the year. The world would be very happy to keep him in a manger as a small baby, but that's not who he is. You ignore him, you do so at your own peril. Because he has promised, although he extends mercy, he has promised to bring judgment against those who stand in rebellion against him. So again, the prophet says, a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The question of the evening, is that true for you? Do you have a personal interest in this child who has been born? Do you have a personal interest in the son who's been given? Do you know him? Not just about him, but do you know him personally? And more importantly, do you worship him? A lot of people say they believe in Jesus, but those believing in Jesus is not sufficient. The book of James says that the devil believes that God exists, that Jesus Christ exists. The question is, do you know him? Do you worship him? And here really is the question, do you love him? Do you love him? Because you can only love him and know him and worship him if he's your savior. If he has come to you and you've received him. Now, again, when you come to this time of the year, I think it's perhaps the greatest activity of the evil one because I think there's so many people who fail to even stop and think on these questions even this time of year at Christmas. But, uh, again, it's this time of year that we need to remind ourselves that we're a needy people and desperate of help and desperate need of help. And God, because of his tender mercy and God, because of his great love, has sent help. God, in his mercy, has sent to us a child child that was born, a son that was given, the greatest gift that we could ever receive. That's the hope of Christmas, the message of Christmas. That, that's a promise, to, again, not only to the people of Isaiah's time, but our time. Because there's no hope, no help, no forgiveness of sin, nothing but darkness if you reject the Savior. One of the great... Or, three of the great realities, I guess, of the time of Christmas that I think we need to keep always in our mind is the very fact of Christ coming into the world, the very fact of Christ being incarnate speaks to the reality of our guilt, of our sin against the Holy God. And the fact that we can do nothing to save ourselves from that guilt, from that sin, only Christ can. The second reality that I think surrounds the Christmas season always speaks to the tremendous love and mercy that God has for man. John 3 and 16 says, For God so loved the world that he did what? 
he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christmas speaks of the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the fact that love sends, the love gives. He sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. And the last point that I think is always true when we remember Christmas is Christ in the world speaks of our guilt and our inability. It speaks of God's tremendous love and his great mercy. But it speaks to the reality of the fact that you need to respond to it. You need to respond to God's mercy in this world through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, the only way for it to move on beyond some kind of cultural holiday is for you to repent and believe upon the Savior. Confess your sin. Confess your need of Christ. Place your faith in him. Stop trusting yourself and trust him. And he'll give you real joy and real peace and real hope and real happiness and encouragement uh, for not just the time of the year that we kind of set aside a lot of the problems of the world, as it were, and put lights up and try to be jovial and festive, but real, true hope, real, true help, because that's why he's come. He's the Savior. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, turn to him, place your faith in him. Have confidence in this son, uh, child born, the son given. And you'll receive the greatest gift, which is eternal life. The gift of God's mercy. The gift of God's forgiveness in your own life. Freedom from sin. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. And a new life. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for that great reality of the person of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in him, the hope of the nations. And we come to Christmas and we celebrate your giving of your son. We celebrate your love. We celebrate your mercy. We acknowledge our great need. Help us to see clearly that, that reality, and then help us to respond appropriately by worshiping you. Loving you, adoring you, serving you preeminently. Child will be born to us, the son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, so says your word. So we rejoice in that. We're so thankful that you have sent light into this dark world and we're thankful that we who have repented and believe have great hope and so for us christmas is again more than just a secular holiday it's a time of great rejoicing and you are god it's a time of acknowledgement our need a time of acknowledgement of your mercy and love and a time of acknowledgement that light has come in the world so that we might not have to walk in darkness any longer so we praise you we honor you we love you For the great good news of Jesus Christ come into this world to open blind eyes so that men would turn from darkness to light, so that men would turn from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in you. And we praise you for this in Christ's name. Amen.